0: After midnight, on July 6th, 2012, three teenage girls walked into the thick Appalachian woods somewhere along the Mason-Dixon County line. Hours later, under the glow of a nearly full moon, only two walked out.
1: You may have heard about the Skylar Neese case of three teenage girls, a pact to kill, and one violent night under the stars deep in the West Virginia woods. But you've never heard it like this. From Waveland, I'm Holly Malay. And I'm Justine Harmon. This is Three.
0: Make your home your happy place with Wayfair and become an official resident of the Waverhood. Wayfair is the go-to destination for everything home and welcomes all styles, so it's easy to find the perfect items for your home. Plus, Wayfair makes it extra easy with fast and free shipping. I just jumped headfirst into the spring collection, and I honestly had to stop myself from basically redecorating my entire house. I settled on some new wall art for our living room, as well as a gorgeous little vase for my weekly flowers I get for our kitchen table. To find your own happy place in the neighborhood, just visit Wayfair on their website or through the Wayfair mobile app. Wayfair. Every style, every home.
1: Brought to you by the Capital One Venture X Card. Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And the story I have for you today is about a woman who was murdered inside her Chicago high-rise. There were no witnesses, and her killer left behind no trace. The case seemed destined to remain unsolved, until a tip came in from a source that still, over 40 years later, is almost possible to believe, but also impossible not to. This is the story of Teresita Basa. It's just before 9 p.m. on the night of February 21st, 1977, and firefighters are racing to the scene of a fire in a high-rise building on Chicago's north side, not far from Lincoln Park. The building's janitor, who called in the fire, had said that one of the building's 15th floor residents had reported smelling smoke. So when they arrive to the scene, the janitor takes them straight up to 15 and there's smoke all right. According to John O'Brien's reporting for the Chicago Tribune, the entire hallway is full of heavy smoke. It doesn't take long to identify where exactly the fire is coming from. They can see the smoke billowing out from around the door of apartment 15B. The door to that unit is locked, but thankfully the janitor is right there with a key to let them in. Two firefighters crawl along the floor to the bedroom where they find the source of the blaze, a mattress, and not on the bed, but on the floor at the foot of the bed.
0: That's weird. And I'm assuming
1: there's no one in the apartment. Well, they can't hear anyone. And based on their initial pass through the apartment, they don't think that there's anyone home. So they're focusing all their energy on getting the fire under control. According to Colin Wilson's book, The Mammoth Encyclopedia of the Unsolved, it only takes firefighters a few minutes to put out the blaze and start opening the windows to try and clear the smoke from the air so they can try and figure out what exactly happened here. And once the smoke does start to clear and they can actually see what they're doing, they see that the mattress is laying perfectly flat on the floor. So they lift up the corner to like start to move it. And they see a pile of women's clothing underneath, which they start to kind of like kick aside before they realize holy crap, it's not just clothing. There is a body under the mattress. Lying flat, eyes pointed at the ceiling, is the body of a woman. She's naked with her arms bent up at the elbows, her hands on either side of her head, and her legs spread apart. The fire had burned most of her hair and even the skin on her face, so it's not super obvious who she is or even how old she is. What's more obvious is how she died, and not from the fire, but from the wooden-handled butcher's knife still embedded in the exact center of her chest. They blast a few still smoldering pieces of clothing with a fire extinguisher and slowly back away from the scene. Because this is more than just a residential fire. This is now a crime scene. So they call in homicide detectives who arrive not long after and pretty quickly identify their victim as the resident of that apartment. 47-year-old Teresita Bassa. Just based on their initial gut read of the crime scene, the detectives suspect that Teresita had been the victim of a sexual assault in addition to her murder.
0: Is that just because her body was naked when she was found or or is there something else pointing to sexual assault?
1: The fact that she's found naked and I think a lot just because of like the position that I described that she was found in is what makes it look like sexual assault. Mm hmm. And interestingly, while the apartment looked as though it had been ransacked, when detectives actually start looking around, they don't find anything missing, which kind of makes robbery an unlikely motive.
0: So the fire was more of like a destroy all the evidence sort of thing then?
1: Yeah, that's what police are thinking. And despite their best efforts to find fingerprints or other evidence that might help lead them to the killer, the fire worked. I mean, any prints that might have been there were totally destroyed. The only piece of possible evidence that police find at the scene is this note. It's one that Teresita had written to herself. According to an Ebony Magazine article by John O'Brien and Edward Bauman, police found it in her diary, which I think refers to more of one of those like daily agendas that you used to find in kind of like the olden days.
0: OK, not everyone uses Google Calendar all the time. And yeah, That's true. <laughs>
1: My sister still uses those, but I guess I just meant like it's not one of those ones you have a lock on where she's like journaling like about her feelings, like a dear diary kind of situation.
0: It's more like a planner.
1: Exactly. So in this planner diary, whatever, they find this note that just says, quote, get concert tickets for A.S., end quote.
0: And who is A.S. and why do investigators think that this is like incredibly significant?
1: Well, So A, they don't have an idea who A.S. is. And truthfully, they don't even know if this is significant. But literally at this point, this is the only thing that they have. So they're just trying to, like, go on something here.
0: Right. Like, they don't even know what is and isn't evidence at this point. And I mean, they still have, like, an autopsy to go through. And, like, hopefully that tells them something. So when I was looking, I couldn't find anything out there about what the autopsy results actually
1: told them. Except for one thing that stood out. And it's something that throws detectives for a loop because when the autopsy comes back, it shows that Teresita had in fact not been sexually assaulted that night. In fact, the autopsy report showed that she had never had sex before ever.
0: Oh, so the motive wasn't sexual assault, then? No. Then what happened? That's exactly what police want
1: to know. So their next move is to track down and talk to the people who knew Teresita, you know, friends, former boyfriends, co-workers, acquaintances, and try to start piecing together a profile of who she was and her last movements. Police learn that Teresita had moved to the U.S. from the Philippines in the mid-60s, like a little over a decade ago at this point. And according to a piece by Margaret Roberts in the Chicago Tribune,
0: she was actually a member of the Philippine aristocracy. Oh, that's interesting. Like, would that have made her a target, do they think? Not that I can tell.
1: And in fact, the more conversations detectives have, the more they realize that this woman didn't have any enemies, like, at all. She worked at a local hospital as, like, a respiratory therapist and had a great reputation. Her colleagues there told police that Teresita was extremely dedicated and cared deeply about her patients. And outside of work hours, she liked to entertain and have friends over to her place frequently, like enough that she would keep beer and like a nice bottle of scotch on hand for guests, even though she herself didn't drink. But most of her time was spent either studying or teaching piano lessons. Apparently, the respiratory therapy gig was kind of like a side hustle for her. She was actually working toward a doctorate in music,
0: and this girl was writing a book. Oh, so she's like really accomplished. Oh, yeah. Really caring and giving and like person you want to be friends with it sounds like yeah was there anyone that she was seeing at the time that she was murdered that the police could talk to maybe
1: no so I mentioned they talked to like ex-boyfriends stuff like that but I couldn't find any mention of a current boyfriend but she did have guy friends and so police wonder if maybe one of them had visited her on the night that she was murdered And they really start to think this because as they talk to more and more people, police learn that Teresita had spoken to a couple of friends on the phone the very night she was killed. And the first was Dr. John Abela, who says that he called Teresita at about 10 after 7 to talk about the tickets that they were selling to this upcoming concert. And he tells police that while they're on the phone, Teresita actually excused herself long enough to go answer the door. And she didn't tell him who was at the door, but he says that Teresita mentioned it was someone there to buy tickets. And the other person Teresita spoke with on the phone that night was this woman named Ruth, who worked with Teresita at the hospital. And Ruth tells detectives that she talked to Teresita for, like, 20 minutes between 7.30 and 7.50. And during that conversation, Teresita mentioned having a male visitor over that night. But
0: again, she doesn't say who. So you mean this visitor was there with Teresita at the apartment when Ruth had called? I don't know. So the source material doesn't
1: say one way or another, but this does raise a few questions for me because either that visitor who came earlier when she was talking to the doctor was there just like hanging around on her couch while she had this 20 minute conversation or she had a second visitor who had come and gone or was coming after the call ended Either way, we know Teresita was alive at 7.50 and the fire was reported at 8.40, which leaves a pretty narrow window for the murder to happen.
0: Right. And did any of her neighbors see anyone come and go that night? Well, if anyone does see
1: another person come or go from Teresita's apartment, I don't think police hear about it. Despite weeks of investigation, dozens of interviews, police don't uncover a single viable lead. With no fingerprints, no physical evidence to test, no security footage to watch, and no leads to follow, by the end of April, their case is pretty much at a standstill. May comes and goes, then June and July, and investigators are starting to worry that they might never find their killer. But then, in early August, one of the detectives investigating the case comes into work to find a note on his desk— And the note asks him to call an officer from another Illinois police department about the Teresita Basa case. And he's surprised, but not, like, mad about it. I mean, at least this is something.
0: Right, like a lead or a tip is something. Like, it's not nothing. He'll take
1: anything at this point. So he calls this other officer who says, You need to reach out to this guy, Dr. Jose Chua. He told us that he has information on this case that you're working on. So the detective's like, OK, well, cool. What information? But the officer on the other end of the line is like super cagey. Like you won't provide any details, won't share anything. Just you need to call this guy about your case.
0: OK. Oh. Okay, that sounds super sketchy. Like, (laughs) is he suggesting to talk to this guy, like, as a suspect or something? No, that's even the thing. He's not even, like, saying
1: enough for the officer to know that. He's like, just talk to him, like, end of story.
0: And is this Jose Chua a name that we've heard before in this case, at least?
1: Nope. Nope. They have no idea who he is. They find out he's a surgeon and he lives in Skokie, which is like a Chicago suburb. But vague or not, again, this is the first potential lead they've had in months. So they decide to check it out. So on August 5th, five months after the murder, one of the detectives heads out to Skokie to see this guy. There, he meets Jose and his wife, Remy, both of whom, it turns out, are also from the Philippines. According to more of John O'Brien's reporting for the Tribune, at first, the Chua's are really quiet, kind of cagey, just like that cop from before, almost like... They don't want to talk, even though they were the ones who reached out to police in the first place. And the read that this cop is getting on them is almost like, like they seem embarrassed. The detective just tries to make conversation, tries to make them feel more comfortable. And eventually, Jose says, listen, I'm a doctor. I'm trained to accept things that I can't explain. But he says that the story he's about to tell is so bizarre and so off the wall that he almost didn't say anything in the first place. And listen, this is a lot of build up for the detective. But the detective's like, I've been doing this job a long time in Chicago where weird stuff happens all the time, like day in, day out. Try me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine there's much he hasn't seen or heard before.
1: Well, he may have thought he'd heard it all before, but then Jose starts talking. It's such a nice perk to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places. But working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anyone else. And that's been great for me especially because these last few months, I've been doing a lot of on-the-ground reporting with our team. From northern Wisconsin to Utah to the middle of nowhere Indiana, I'm able to stream, make calls, or get those case-altering DMs from sources, which that's my favorite part. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Find out more at t network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds according to analysis by Ookla of Speed Test Intelligence Data Q3 2023. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Jose tells the detective about this one night several weeks ago when his wife, Remy, had been feeling kind of under the weather. She went to their bedroom to lie down, and after a little while, he went in to check on her. He says that something about her seemed off. Like she was lying there in bed, kind of like staring blankly off into space. And so he said he asked his wife what was wrong, but the voice that answered wasn't her voice like it was coming from her mouth and everything it just wasn't her he tells detectives that his wife or this voice spoke to him in tagalog which at the time was the official language of the philippines but it had this like really bizarre spanish accent
0: but remy his wife is filipino too right like did she not speak tagalog No, she totally did. Like, they both did. But Jose said that
1: Remy always spoke English to him and that when she did speak in their native language, it was never with a Spanish accent. Okay, but what did she say? It's not clear what exactly she's saying at first. Apparently, Remy seemed kind of, like, incoherent. And so he asked her, what's your name? And he was shocked when Remy spoke again in that same strange accent as before. And the voice said, I am Teresita Bassa. Now, at the time, Jose says that he didn't have a clue who Teresita Bassa was. He had never heard that name before in his life. But the voice persisted. She kept saying her name was Teresita Bassa and that she'd been murdered and that she needed help. Help with what? Capturing the killer. Now, the source material differs on how this part of the story unfolds. But the version Colin Wilson provides in his book says that this episode was over pretty quickly. And when she like snapped out of it, Remy had no knowledge of what had just happened. And so Jose kind of tried to just like brush it off as something just strange, like a one-off delirium, kind of like a fever dream if you've ever had one of those. But Jose tells the detective that then two days later, it happened again. Only this time, he says, the voice of Teresita Basa told him that a man had come into her apartment and stabbed her. Okay, like, we kind of already know that, but who? Well, this time he has a name. Alan Showery. Alan Showery, like A-S? A-S, what was written in her diary. Jose tells the detective that this so-called voice of Teresita said that Alan was a friend of hers. He'd come to her door that night and she'd let him
0: in herself. And had police spoken to anyone named Alan during their investigation so far? They hadn't, which I have to think would be fueling the detective's skepticism
1: about Jose's whole story. So the detective, like, actually tries poking some holes in this. Like, he knows the detail of the crime that the public doesn't. So he asks Jose, did the voice, like, mention anything about sexual assault? But Jose says no, she didn't mention any sexual assault, just that she'd been stabbed.
0: Okay, but that's like a 50-50 chance of him getting it right or wrong. It doesn't really prove anything.
1: No, no, of course not. But if he'd answered yes to that question and said that she talked about sexual assault, the detective would have known, like, this is BS and he could have just called it. But listen, the discussion isn't over here, because Jose tells the detective that the voice came back again a third time. And this time, she was even more insistent about Jose telling police that Alan Showery was her killer. She was pleading for help by this time. But Jose says, again, he was like, I can't go to the police with this. Like, they're going to need proof. And so he says that the voice gave him proof. He says Teresita told him, again, through his wife, that while Alan was at her apartment that night, he stole some jewelry.
0: Wait, did police even know that? I thought they went to the apartment and hadn't found that anything was missing. You know, you're right. They hadn't found that anything
1: was missing. But Jose tells them that the voice of Teresita actually described the jewelry in detail. It's kind of like small pieces. So, you know, unless the police knew what they were looking for, I don't know they would have
0: noticed that they were gone. It's not like all the jewelry was gone. It was like one or two specific pieces. Exactly.
1: That she used to wear. So the voice says that the killer had stolen a pearl cocktail ring and a jade pendant and that he had given both of those things to his girlfriend. The voice went on to say that one of those pieces had been a gift between her parents. So Jose tells the detective that he again tried to challenge the voice, saying, "Okay, well, like, how do we know that it's your jewelry, even if I find something like this? And the story, as it appears in Colin Wilson's Unsolved Book, is that Teresita's voice said, quote, My cousins Ron Samara and Ken Bassa could identify it. So could my friends Richard Pisotti and Ray King, end quote. And then, apparently, the voice even provided Ron's phone number. Before this voice left his wife's body for the last time, she said, quote, Al came to fix my television, and he killed me and burned me. Tell the police, end quote. At this point, the detective's head is spinning. Jose's story
0: is completely bonkers. But also, what if it's true? Yeah, I mean... I know you said that Jose didn't know Teresita, but is there any chance that his wife Remy did?
1: Well, Remy at least knew of Teresita, though the two weren't close friends or anything. Apparently, Remy had worked at the same hospital as Teresita for a while, doing the same job, actually. But John O'Brien reported that the only time Remy recalled meeting Teresita was at an orientation session two years earlier in 75. And after that, they worked different shifts, and by the time these possessions, if that's what you want to call them, started happening. Remy was no longer even working there. But there's something about the Chua's and their story that makes the detective think that the lead is at least worth pursuing. And it might just be the fact that they've had nothing else up to this point. So they run a background check on this Allen guy. And what they discover is that he and Teresita did know one another. They actually worked together at the hospital While sources differ on his actual job, some describe him as like an orderly, others say respiratory technician, they agree that they had in fact worked together. And Allen also lived just four blocks from Teresita's building. The police's background check also brings up a criminal record. No convictions, but several arrests over the last 10-plus years for things like burglary, theft, and sexual assault. Two sexual assaults, actually, both of which were alleged to have happened inside the victim's apartments.
0: Okay, but Teresita wasn't sexually assaulted. She wasn't, you're right, but her murder
1: had been staged as a sexual assault. Well, listen, his prior arrests are just part of the story. According to a 1990 episode of Unsolved Mysteries called Voice from the Grave, police also learned from speaking to some of Teresita's colleagues that he was supposed to go to her apartment the night of her murder to fix her TV. So detectives decide that, you know what, maybe we should just set aside the way this lead came in. And we should go see Alan.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I had an extra hour in my day, I'd like to think that I'd read a book, maybe take a walk, spend time learning a new hobby. But if I'm being honest, I'd probably just take a nap. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, H-E-L-P dot com slash They arrive at his
1: apartment late in the evening on August 11th. Allen is home with his girlfriend at the time, and according to a Chicago Today article by Ray Johnson, they say, we think you might be able to help us with this murder investigation we're working on. Would you mind coming down to the station to answer a few questions? Once they get down there, Allen tells detectives that Yes, he did know Teresita, and it's true, he made plans to go to her apartment to repair TV, but he said, I actually never made it. In fact, I'd never even been to her apartment before, ever. And does he have an alibi? Yeah, Alan says that he was home that night for dinner, and then around 7.30, he and his girlfriend ended up at a neighbor's place for the evening, like, drinking and playing darts, and he says, actually, that's why he didn't end up going. He just, like, totally forgot that he'd agreed to go to her house to fix her TV. So detectives are like, okay, cool. And so they ask him, like, hey, do you mind giving us some fingerprints to compare to some that we found at the scene? That way we can, like, rule you out fair and square and you can be on your way. Now, of course, they don't have fingerprints, but, like, Alan doesn't know that. So he immediately changes his story. He says, well, oh, you know, actually, I lied before. I have, in fact, been to Teresita's house, but it was so long ago, like, at least several months ago. Hmm, that seems convenient. Yeah, and then his story changes again. And he says, actually, you know, I did go to Teresita's house that night to repair the TV, just like that co-worker at the hospital had told you. But I was only there for like a few minutes. And he says that he didn't end up repairing the TV because he hadn't brought whatever tools or plans or whatever he needed to actually do it.
0: Okay, so we've gone from I've never been to her apartment to... I was there, but it's been months Mm -hmm. to, yeah, I was actually there that night she was murdered. That seems like a lot of different versions of something called truth. Yeah,
1: too many versions. So police decide to just pause the questioning and see if maybe his girlfriend, whose name is Yanka, might be able to help shed a little light on the situation. So they call her up and she tells them that She does remember the night of the murder because she very distinctly remembers hearing the fire trucks scream past the apartment window on their way to put the fire out. She tells them that she was out doing some shopping and Alan was at home and she remembers that he'd actually come home early that day. But she doesn't know anything about him going to fix someone's TV or, you know, she didn't even know that he knew how to fix a TV. So they decide to ask Yanka if Alan happened to give her any jewelry lately And she says, huh, funny you should ask. He had given her a couple of pieces of jewelry back in February. What he says was a late Christmas present. So immediately they ask her to gather up all of her jewelry, everything she owns, and meet them at the police station. Then they call two of Teresita's family members. The ones that Jose had mentioned would be able to identify the jewelry. And they asked them to come down to the station too. The first thing detectives notice when Yanka walks through the door is the ring on her finger. An antique pearl cocktail ring, exactly like the one Jose had described, exactly like the one Teresita described to him. And when her relatives arrive, they quickly confirm that both a jade pendant necklace and the cocktail ring both belonged to Teresita, 100%. When police confront Alan with this information, he insists they've got it all wrong, that he just bought the ring and the necklace at a pawn shop. And he forgot to get a receipt, of course, but he doesn't push that defense for very long. And within a few minutes, he's asking police if he can please speak to his girlfriend. And Brett, I'm going to get you to read from a Chicago Tribune story about what Alan says to Yanka.
0: He said, quote, Honey, I am very sorry, but our relationship is over. We have had a great seven years, but I am responsible for Miss Bassa's death. I don't want you to wait for me because I am not coming back. I want you to sell the furniture and make a good life for our child. End quote. So, he confesses? Yeah. Alan
1: tells police that the whole television thing was bang on. He had gone over that evening to fix Terracita's TV, but For whatever reason, whether he didn't have the right tools or couldn't do it or whatever, he ended up leaving pretty soon after. He says that he was on his way back to his apartment when he came up with a plan to rob and kill her. Just because he felt like it? He tells police that he needed the money, that he was like behind on bills, like rent and utilities. And in the past, when he'd done things to help Teresita out, she'd given him pretty generous tips. So he just like assumed she had money. So Alan tells police that he went back to Teresita's place that night. She let him in, and when she turned her back to lock the door, he quickly wrapped his arm around her neck from behind and held it there until she passed out and stopped struggling. Then he undressed her and staged the scene to make it look like a sexual assault, grabbed a knife from the kitchen to stab her in the chest, and then pulled the mattress from the bed, and set it on fire in an effort to cover the whole thing up. Okay, but what else did he take besides those two pieces of jewelry? $30, Britt. What? 30 bucks. that's it. He didn't even walk away with enough for police to notice that anything was missing, that the place had been robbed.
0: Yeah, I was just about to say, like, how could he have taken anything because they basically said nothing was taken? Because you wouldn't know if 30 bucks was gone. That's not even enough to pay his
1: rent and utilities. At this point, Alan signs a written confession, at which point, I mean, I kind of picture these two detectives, like, thanking their lucky stars that this truly bonkers case is closed and no one has to hear about what started them down this road to Alan in the first place. But then, when it comes time for the real show in court, Alan pleads not guilty to murder. What? He confessed? Well, he says the confession was coerced, that... First of all, he didn't agree to be questioned that night at all. He says that he was given no choice in the matter. And second, the only reason he confessed to killing Teresita was because police said that if he didn't, they were going to put his girlfriend in prison as an accessory to the crime. And she was eight months pregnant at the time.
0: I mean, there's a pretty decent amount of circumstantial evidence against this guy, even without the confession. but there wasn't
1: any physical evidence, which is the other thing Allen's team says before they even get to trial when they're trying to convince the judge to drop the charges. They say that the entirety of the case against him is based on this ridiculous story about a ghost. But the prosecution says that the so-called voice, the ghost, whatever you want to call it, that initial tip was just that it was an initial tip. But everything that followed, all of the evidence, circumstantial or not, that they collected against Allen was done independently and had nothing to do with the supernatural. And ultimately, the court agrees. Rob Warden quoted the judge in a Washington Post article saying, I see no reason to restrict the investigatory power of the police. Whether they believed the voices or not, they had to check it out. But when Allen's case goes to trial, the jury, frankly, the jury doesn't know what to make of it. Which is why, after hearing from 33 witnesses over the course of eight days, they can't come to a conclusion. Half of them think Alan is guilty, and the other half feel there's enough reasonable doubt not to convict him of murder. So, the judge declares a mistrial and orders a second murder
0: trial. Who doesn't love a tropical vacation? But we all dread the planning, especially when the group can't agree. With Carnival Cruise Line, you can kick back or dive right into the fun. Imagine yourself paddleboarding in the crystal clear waters of one of Carnival's exclusive destinations, Half Moon Key in the Bahamas. Taking an ATV ride through the jungle or just relaxing on white, sandy Caribbean beaches. What if you want to chill on ship? Well, you can find your bliss at the Cloud9 Spa. And the dining options? Enjoy craft cocktails and take your pick among the delectable restaurants, from surf and turf to family-style Italian. Then, settle in for an evening of live entertainment. So pack those bags, but be sure to leave room for a few unforgettable memories. Are you officially a cruise person now? Because no one does fun like Carnival. Book your dream vacation at Carnival.com. Ships Registry, The Bahamas and Panama. Warning. Things are about to get intense. Intense Heat, Lasting Plump, from the hot new Lifter Plump from Maybelline, New York. Formulated with chili pepper, Lifter Plump delivers a heated sensation for an instant lip plumping effect that lasts. Available in eight sizzling shades, like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, and my personal favorite, Hot Honey. Can you take the heat? Find your shade at Maybelline.com or a retailer near you. Amazon shoppers get 10% off Lifter Plump purchase with code 10PLUMP for a limited time.
1: But before that could even begin, and against the advice of his lawyers, Allen makes the surprising decision to this time plead guilty. The judge sentences him to 14 years for the murder and four years each for armed robbery and arson. According to John O'Brien's trial coverage in the Tribune, those sentences will run concurrently. And under Illinois law, that makes him eligible for parole after serving just over half the sentence.
0: I can feel this guy's guilty conscious, like, from here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's why he pled guilty the second time. He was just like, just make it
0: stop. Right. So has anyone ever proved the whole voice from the grave thing wrong? Like, is there any other explanation for that whole thing? Well, I mean, no one's ever proved it wrong, but there are definitely skeptics out there. Alan's attorney
1: brought up a bunch of stuff at his trial about Remy in particular and about how she may have had an axe to grind with Alan. Over what? Well, there may have been some bad blood between Remy and Alan. Coverage in the Kenosha News says that Remy and Alan worked together, again, same hospital, same small, tight-knit department, for over a year. And their colleagues said that Alan and Remy would have known each other from working, quote, hand-in-hand, day in and day out, end quote. There were reports from other hospital colleagues that Alan had complained about the quality of Remy's work, which ultimately led to her being fired from her job for disobedience and absenteeism. And apparently this like first episode of Teresita's voice speaking through Remy happened the day after she got a crank call that she blamed Alan for. And just hours after she found out about being fired.
0: I mean, that might explain the why, but doesn't explain where the actual information came from. Like, is there any explanation for how she could have known about the jewelry and, like, even who might be able to identify it?
1: Well, the truth is, no one really knows. Skeptics tend to think that Remy actually came by the details of the crime and Alan's involvement, like, through mutual friends or coworkers or whatever.
0: I mean, she definitely had the time to do that. It was, like, what, like, six months after the murder that she claimed these episodes started? Right, yeah. Okay, but then why bother with the whole ghost of Teresita's story at all? Like, why not just take the information to the authorities anonymously?
1: Well, I mean, one theory, and it kind of came up during trial, is that Remy was scared of Alan, though, like, it's not super clear why. Like, it might have just been, like, a vibe or something. But if that is the case, then maybe this whole thing about Teresita speaking through her could have been a way for her to say that she knew something without, like, her actually saying what she knew. I mean, it does make sense to me, but, like, It makes her feel like a little bit removed from it, potentially in her mind. I don't know.
0: Right, right. And I'm going to say something that is probably an unpopular opinion, but were the Chua's ever investigated for Teresita's murder? Well, the defense certainly tried to suggest that and even went so far
1: as to say that Remy actually sold Teresita's jewelry to Alan unknowingly on his end, I presume, as part of this whole like witch hunt that she was on. It's not spelled out in the source material for this case, so I can't say with certainty that they were truly investigated. But authorities did say that they were confident that the Chua's had no involvement whatsoever in Terracita's murder. So I don't know what they did to clear them, but they were completely ruled out.
0: Okay. So this case has been bonkers, Ashley. Like, yeah. where do people land on it today? Like, do people believe that Terracita came back from the dead to name her killer or or what? There's skeptics and there are believers and
1: then there are skeptical believers. And actually one of the detectives who investigated the murder, the one who actually spoke to the Chua's that day and heard their story firsthand, he kind of falls into the latter category. He says that he isn't sure he believes the Chua's story, but that the evidence collected as a result, that doesn't lie. On the list of believers are people who claim that they too have been visited by the ghost of Teresita Basa. Carol Mercado published a book on the case in 1979 and she told reporter Elaine Graybill from the Sunday Pentagraph about a couple of truly weird happenings during the course of her work. Like how an editor who had been making notes on the manuscript walked into her office one day to find those pages spinning around on her desk. And Carol herself said that while she was working on the book, she'd get these strange phone calls where there would just be silence on the other end And she thought that was the spirit of Teresita. And listen, who knows if it's true or not? But what if it is true? I actually have one more Teresita ghost story to tell you guys. Now, this is just a post I found on the Reddit paranormal forum. So take it with a grain of salt, of course. But Britt, I'm going to get you to read this for us.
0: Okay, so in August 2020, a user named Zulu Monkey wrote, quote, I have kept this to myself for quite some time, but I guess I'm ready to share this creepy story. A few months ago, I dreamed I was in a big city, somewhere in the American Midwest. I was walking around the downtown area when I met this middle-aged woman. She looked Asian to me. We'd chit-chat a bit as if we both know each other. After a day or two, I've read a news headline about the mysterious death of, quote, Teresita Bassa," end quote. the same woman whom I've met in the earlier part of my dream. And then I woke up in the middle of the night, drenched in cold sweat. I thought it was just a random bad dream, and I shrugged it off. I went back to sleep and had a different dream, thank God. When I woke up the following day, I can still remember the details of my dream, even the name of the victim. I googled it, and I got goosebumps. How is this even possible? Just a few notes. 1. I am not related to this person. 2. I have never read her story online until after I dreamt about her. 3. I've never been to the USA. The closest I've been to the U.S. was at the Niagara Falls Canada horseshoe side. Four, I'm currently residing in Manila, Philippines. Obviously, I live on the other side of the planet. End quote. That is so creepy. And again,
1: you can write whatever you want online. But if it's true, that's a long time after she was murdered. And it almost seems like Teresita still has something to say. Teresita's body is buried in the Philippines, on Negros Island in her hometown of Dumaguete. And listen, at the end of the day with this story, frankly, I don't know what to believe. Are there alternative explanations for how Remy came to suspect Alan for the murder? Other ways she could have gotten information that ultimately led police to him? Sure. But could the ghost of Teresita Bassa have come back to tell the world what really happened? I mean, you better believe that if I was ever murdered and police couldn't find my killer, I would be trying to find a way back from the grave to make sure they knew who did it. You can find all the source material for this episode on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com.
0: And be sure to follow us on Instagram at crimejunkiepodcast. We'll be
1: back next week with a brand new episode, but stick around for Prepet of the Month. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?
0: Okay, Ashley, would you like to tell our listeners? your specific request for this month's preppet of the month
1: yeah, I did I was I said if uh, is
0: there any way you could find like a Halloween themed preppet of the month <laughs> you also specifically said can you find a preppet who has returned as a ghost
1: oh yeah <laughs> that sounds like me too
0: <laughs> so I couldn't find any ghost dogs couple dogs named ghost but okay. I did find a preppet whose gotcha story is still on theme so this is a story of How our listener Carrie met her puppet Jasper. So it was the night of Halloween in 2018, and Carrie and her husband went to her sister in law's house to trick or treat with all the kids of the family and hang out for the holiday. And when they were getting ready to head out, you know, to all the candy fun, this scraggly little dog showed up. And he seemed really skittish around all the adults, but he also was super interested and comfortable around all the littles who were all decked out, you know, in their little costumes and everything, which is honestly the best part of Halloween, in my opinion. It was just kind of like this random stray, and every time they tried to catch him, he would run away, and they eventually lost sight of him, and the family had, you know, big plans to rake in some candy that night, so they went about their merry way. Now, when they came back from their trick-or-treating... That same little scrappy dog was waiting on the front porch for them. A treat. I know. And as the kids went in for, like, I don't know how you guys did it growing up, Ashley, but, like, the candy swap where, like, you dump everything out and, like, I'll take the Twizzlers if you take my, like, Skittles type thing. So we did candy swap, but, like, you and I weren't allowed to trick or treat. Don't fool people. (laughs) I wasn't going to say it out loud, but, like, we definitely still did the candy swap from, like, our very, very tame Christian harvest party situation. Church event. (laughs) (laughs) The candy swap. We're all familiar with it. Okay, we're all on board. And while the kids did that, the adults, which just sounds like so much fun, watched a scary movie outside on a projector all together. Yes. And when they did that, this little scrappy little mutt sidled up to Carrie and her husband on a blanket and stayed there the entire movie, which is just like so adorable. So Carrie's sister-in-law was like, I'll keep him for a couple days, you know, hit up the Facebook Lost and Found Pets things, like I'll try to find his his family. And after a couple days there was just nothing. And um, she couldn't keep him anymore. So Carrie is like, well, we'll take him for a couple days.
1: (laughs) Sure, Carrie.
0: Yeah. So Carrie takes him to the vet, too, just to see if he has a chip. No chip. And when the vet is checking him out, he's like, what's the dog's name? And Carrie's like, oh, his name's Jasper. Oh, okay. Completely, like, randomly, she's like, I felt like his name started (laughs) with a J. Felt in her soul. And when the vet asked, I just said Jasper. And then Jasper was ours. And so the vet did a whole workup. And... He wasn't in good shape. He was very underweight. He had hookworms. He had heartworm. And he was, like, devoured by fleas. Mm. And so they got him in treatment. And as of November 2020, he is completely heartworm-free. He has no more hookworms, no more fleas. And he's gained a healthy eight pounds. Now, you're Chuck. Mm-hmm. Eight pounds is nothing.
1: I was just going to say, how big is this dog? Because Chuck literally has gained like 20 pounds, and I can't tell.
0: (laughs) So Jasper is a Chihuahua pug mix. So eight pounds is like life-giving. Oh. Oh. Yeah. So he is living his best life. And actually, I'm going to send you a picture right now that will be on theme and will be on our website. Because it is just so cute, and he is the happiest pup in the world right now. (laughs) He's in a little pumpkin hat. (laughs) (laughs) He is in a little pumpkin hat. So he is their little Halloween miracle. He, you know, has had some behavioral issues. He was super afraid of like the ocean and they live in a sea town, which was kind of an issue. But he recently made a visit and loved it and ran up and down the beach like the free spirit he is. And I just love Jasper and like the fact that his little personality is coming out now. And, you know, he's been with Carrie and her husband now for three years. And I just think it's an adorable story. He's really become the light of their lives, Carrie said. And again, there's this super festive pick that's going to be on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com, as well as a link to the Foresight Humane Society, which is local to Jasper and his family. And, a rescue that Carrie wanted us to shout out. So be sure to check that out. And Ashley, you just said, you look like you want to say something. Well, yeah. I
1: also want to say before we leave that if anyone has been visited by the ghost of their dog,
0: I would love to hear about it. <laughs> I was going to say, as soon as I said that we don't have any ghosty dog stories, I feel like we're going to get like 500 ghost dog stories. I hope they
1: come flooding it. I. I need to know that when Charlie moves out one day, he will come back and visit.
0: <laughs> so give me I hope. I feel like he'll come back and visit you in a good way. And when I stay at your house, he'll come back and visit me and be like, "Why are you sleeping in my bed? Why are you still sleeping in my bed?" <laughs>